0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in uh, Mark's gospel for our study, chapter 5 tonight. And uh, this is quite a famous passage of Scripture. It's a story that is on many Sunday school storyboards. It's something that even if people aren't very familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of this somewhere uh, on things. It's the story of Jesus and the, the maniac in the region of Gadara, the man who was possessed by a legion of demons. He is called the demoniac. I don't know if that's actually a word in the dictionary, but it comes from the combination of the fact that he was demon-possessed and he was a maniac, and so he's called uh, the demoniac. It's a very insightful passage. It's inspiring. It's instructional, and believe it or not, it's actually relatable, so you're sitting here thinking, I'm not demon-possessed. I don't know what this is going to speak to me, Um, but it absolutely will speak to you tonight, I believe, uh, from the Lord. Now, there are... There are very few things in this life that are a guarantee. You've all heard of the big two uh, that are guaranteed, death and taxes. Um, But there are a few other things in life that are absolutely guaranteed. And one of those things that is absolute is that when Jesus comes into a situation, there is going to be some form of change. That's a guarantee. That's an absolute. Uh, somebody or something is going to change if Jesus comes into the picture. Now, that's the common denominator between every passage that involves the presence of Jesus. As we move through the Gospels, in our studies that we've been going through on Wednesday nights, there is always a status quo, a set of circumstances represented at the beginning Then Jesus comes into the picture, and by the end of the story, everything is flipped over, things are changed, people are changed, circumstances are changed, systems are changed, societies changed, something is changed. And that's just always true about Jesus. You can't bring Jesus into a system or into a situation and not have there be some kind of change. Now, that's true for the people in the stories, the bystanders, the characters, whatever. But I can only imagine what it must be like for the disciples that are walking with Jesus day by day throughout his earthly ministry. I mean, can you imagine what it's like for them to watch change happen at such an incredible pace? And you can only imagine the change that's happening in their lives day by day while they walk with Jesus and watch him. Because he is just continually becoming bigger in their understanding every single day that they walk with him. They're seeing that he is bigger than human limitations. They're learning on another occasion that he's bigger than physical infirmities. He's able to speak things that don't work back into working order that he's bigger than natural law he's bigger than human and religious institutions and and day by day Jesus is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and on the heels of the text that we have tonight this encounter and passage in Mark's gospel chapter 5 Jesus has just gotten bigger in their eyes yet again now this story that we're going to read tonight, is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three of the Gospel records, it is preceded by the same event, which also is in all three of those Gospels. And that is when Jesus was with a multitude in one location, and then he says to his disciples, let's get into a boat, and we're going to go to the other side. And while they are moving from one side to the other, a storm arises and their lives are then in danger because of the strength of the storm. The boat that they're in is filled to the brim with water. And while the disciples are toiling, trying to stay afloat, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Under those conditions, how that is, we don't know. But that's what's going on. And when Jesus awakes and he sees them struggling, he stands and in one word... He speaks calm over the weather and the elements and the storm immediately ceases and they're in immediate safety. And it tells us that his disciples marveled and they said, who is this that has power even over the elements, over the wind and the waves and over the weather? And so yet again, Jesus becomes bigger as they see something of him That they didn't know was possible previously and I imagine that was an amazing privilege for them to be day by day Having their minds blown by the size of the son of God And my question to you even at the outset is is that real for you? Is that a reality in your life? Because we've been called to walk with jesus We don't encounter him just on Sundays or Wednesdays or at particular moments, but we've been called into a fellowship with him that's moment by moment and day by day. And I'm forced to ask myself, and I ask you, is that happening in your life? Is Jesus getting bigger in your life day by day? Is God being revealed to you in such a way that he is infinitely more than what you ever thought moment by moment? Or have you, like me, sometimes I can do, just decided somewhere that we've come as far as we can go? We know as much of him as there is to know. We've experienced as much of him as there is to experience. Well, I want to tell you something. Is that the Bible says that he is from everlasting to everlasting. The Bible says that he is infinite, and the Bible alludes to the fact that we will spend eternity uncovering more and more of who he is, and for all of eternity, we'll never uncover all of it. And so if that's true for eternity, then who are we to think that what we have of him now is all there is to have? He wants us to know him in greater and greater ways, in richer and richer ways, moment by moment and day by day. Well, I imagine that these disciples, like us, probably thought at the point that they removed themselves from that boat and made it to the other side, that now they knew everything that there was to know about Jesus. He can't possibly get any bigger than he is at this moment of our existence or of our lives. But no sooner do they make that assumption, but bigger meets them as they get out of the boat on the other side. The passage, the event, it happens in Mark chapter 5. Notice with me in verse 1 what it says. It says that they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. Now, the Gadarenes, or Gadara, is a village just along the Sea of Galilee there in Israel, northern Israel. And it says that when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit or a man who is possessed by a demon. Now, if you're new to the things of God and to the things of the Bible, when you hear that phrase, at very least it causes you to raise an eyebrow. And you say, what in the world does this mean that a man is being possessed by a demon or by an unclean spirit? At least you raise an eyebrow. At most, you might be thinking, I'm never going to sleep again. <laughs> if it's possible for the, the, the realm of something unseen and unclean to take possession of a human life, something that I can't see, that I don't understand, and frankly, therefore, don't know how to defend myself against, what in the world does that mean? Well, what the Bible teaches and what we probably all understand, whether we're Bible people or not, is that there is in existence a spiritual realm that's invisible to the physical eye that exists all around us all the time. There's an order to it, and God is the king of it. He's the ultimate one that determines the order of things within his kingdom. The spiritual realm is bigger, it's more real, and it influences and it affects the physical realm As well as people's lives we are affected by what is going on in the unseen spiritual realm Now a part of that spiritual realm is what we would call the kingdom of darkness Or the satanic realm or the dark realm And it's important that you understand that that didn't always exist But the bible talks about one angel whose name is satan And satan was created by god as a powerful angel of light. In fact, his name at the first was Lucifer, which means light bearer. And he was called the son of the morning. And he's described for us in Ezekiel chapter 28, before he became the devil, as one that was radiating in beauty, that was filled with gifts, and that was in charge, at least in part, of the worship of heaven. And he was this glorious being. But at some point, when we don't know, how we don't know, the details we don't know, he decided to rebel against God. He wasn't either content with his position or he wasn't content with the order of God's kingdom. And he drew with him, the Bible says, one third of all of the angelic realm. Now we don't know how many one-third of the angelic realm is, we know it's a very large number because we get glimpses here and there of some very large numbers of angels and spirits and things, even as we will in our text tonight. But the thing that you need to know is that although one-third of the angels that were originally angels of light have now fallen, two-thirds of those angels did not fall, which means at best the kingdom of darkness is always outnumbered by a margin of two to one, which should make you understand that they that are with us are more than they that are with them. And someday the kingdom of darkness will be abolished completely. But as of now, God still rules even over that kingdom, as we'll see in our text tonight. Now, we understand that the realm of darkness has influence over the physical realm even as the kingdom of light does but the kingdom of darkness affects nations and governments it affects policy and culture it affects trends and humanity it affects things that are going on around us and in in the large picture the kingdom of darkness has an influence in the world but what we also understand is that the kingdom of darkness can have an influence over individual lives as well. Satan can affect individuals. And that's what we're seeing here in the text as we see a man who's possessed by Satan. And Satan can affect individuals in at least three ways. There's probably more. But one of those ways is by possession. He can possess. And that's what we see here in the text tonight. And what that means is that literally an evil spirit enters a human body, overpowers their will, dominates their faculties, and renders them powerless. And it's not mental illness. It's a spiritual thing where there's a real demon inside of the human life. It's spiritual, and we see it in the Bible. Now, how does that work? We have no idea. What causes that to happen? Again, we have no idea. But what we do know is that anyone who doesn't have Jesus Christ inside of them is vulnerable to it. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. There might be an opening up of some door or something. But we know that it can happen. We also know that a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon. And that's just practical. Because when Jesus lives inside of you, Satan has no interest of being anywhere around that. We're going to see that tonight as we go through these passages. We also know that Jesus does not timeshare with Satan. He doesn't move in and still give space to something that's evil. That's not what he does. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So a Christian cannot be possessed by Satan. However, certain people can. We see that. Another way that Satan influences individuals or or affects individuals, not through possession, but through influence. Influence. And this is important because it's much more common than possession. When Satan influences a person, he doesn't dominate their will as much as he influences their behavior through temptation and through trends. He influences humanity by getting us to see things like he did with Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he makes suggestions to us by what's going on around us. And he whispers thoughts, puts things in front of us. And then he's able to not only grab our attention, but then harness our obedience. But it's not him overpowering our will. It's him influencing our will. And the reason why it's a much more powerful and much more subtle influence of the enemy is because we don't know that we're being influenced by him. We think that we're just operating of our own will and doing things according to our own agenda. Meanwhile, we're being influenced by the kingdom of darkness. The difference between influence and possession is that when someone is being influenced by Satan, the person still has control of their will and of their body, and thus they don't know that they're being affected by a spiritual force. Now, if someone is a Christian, if someone is a believer, then they will ultimately get Free of this influence because the Bible says that Jesus is truth. That means a Christian can be influenced, but Jesus, who is the truth, is stronger than the influence of Satan, and thus that influence will be rendered inactive as we grow in our understanding of the truth and in our walk with Jesus Christ. The third way that Satan can influence, or I'm sorry, I keep using that word, but it's killing your continuity the way that he affects humanity is not just through possession and influence, but thirdly, is through suggestion. Suggestion. And this is Satan's most powerful tool against a Christian. And this is what actually happened to the Apostle Paul. If you read Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul the Apostle says that God allowed in his life, Paul actually said, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that were given. He says that there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, listen, the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. That is because of all of what God had showed him and the temptation that came with that revelation for Paul to be lifted up in pride, God allowed allowed a satanic messenger to be constantly making suggestions in his ear and he calls it a thorn in his flesh something that he had to deal with on a daily basis and this is what satan does most often to try to affect christians believers and that is he suggests things to them and what he does is that he gets us to believe the wrong things through persuasive suggestions. I want to say that again. He gets us to believe wrong things through persuasive suggestions. And then he's able to influence our lives and quench our lives based upon the fact that we're believing wrong things about God. So, for example, Satan will suggest to you that God doesn't actually love you, that God just tolerates you. He'll suggest to you that you're not really saved because of things that you struggle with or thoughts that he can get you to entertain. He'll get you to believe that you can't really be free. Maybe some people can, or maybe you can experience partial freedom, but you can't experience total freedom in Jesus Christ. He'll try to convince you that you're an adopted child of God. Now, listen, we are all adopted children of God. But that's not what Satan is saying. What he's saying is, yeah, you're you're really kind of the adopted one. Everyone else is kind of embraced, and you're tolerated. You're in the room with all the other Christians, and God really loves them, but you, mm, he kind of felt bad for you. You didn't really have much hope, and so he was merciful, and he let you in, but he doesn't really care about you as much as he does maybe about others. He'll suggest to you that God's got nothing for you. He'll suggest to you that you shouldn't expect much from God in your life, that what you know and what you have and what you are today is pretty much what you can expect to experience until you go to heaven. He'll suggest to you that you've used up all your chances, that God has given you as much grace as he's going to give you, and now he's resigned you to be what you are. He'll convince you that you shouldn't pray because God already knows what he's going to do, and so therefore prayer is ineffective and you're wasting your time by talking to God. And he'll go on and on and on. And he is extremely good at suggesting truths to people, to Christians, getting them to believe it, and thus he renders them powerless. And thus Satan, without ever laying a finger on a believer, can affect their lives as much as if he had possessed them at the beginning because they're believing the wrong things. Faith is a powerful thing whether it's used for good or for evil. And so satan uses unbelief or wrong belief and he leverages power over our lives and he goes undetected in the process And so all of us in some way are affected by the realm of darkness though. We're not possessed We can be influenced and I believe every one of us to some degree. We succumb to the suggestions Of darkness. Well, here's a man we see in our text. He's possessed by satan himself, and he's about to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And notice what it says in verse 3. It says that this man who had this unclean spirit, it said that he had his dwelling among the tombs. He was living, but he was living among the dead. And it says that no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked Asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces now I can only imagine what this must have looked like I wonder how many cufflinks he had going up his arm with broken pieces of chain that have come off of him Around his ankles, you know what he carried around what it sounded like as he ran out of the tombs and came towards Jesus This man who's been demonized and no one has been able to bind the influence of satan that has come into this man's life. No man could bind him, though many had tried. AA could not bind this man's satanic influence. NA couldn't bind him. The patch couldn't bind him. Jewel pods couldn't bind him. Promise keepers couldn't bind him. Keto couldn't bind him. An accountability partner couldn't bind the influence of evil in this man's life everything he had tried to do to subdue the power of wickedness had been broken because the power of wickedness was stronger than he was. I don't know if you can relate to that. I don't know if there's something in your life, an effect or an influence that's in your life, and it seems that everything you've ever tried to bind its power, the power of those things was nothing in the presence of that dark influence that you struggle with, that you wrestle against. It also says, interestingly, at the end of the verse, that no man could tame him. Meaning that no matter what they tried to do to tranquilize the effect and influence that this darkness had over his body, it didn't work. He couldn't be medicated into a better position. He couldn't be castrated into a better position. Nothing could quench the influence of evil within his life. And it led him to a place where it goes on to say in verse five, that always night and day He was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. I'm sure at one point in this man's life, it was only at certain times during the day. There were probably trigger points or trigger times where things affected him and where he felt like he had to fight more and more. But now this possession, this problem has grown to a place where it doesn't matter what time of day it is, it's crying out to him. And it's causing him to go from the heights of the mountains down into the depths of the valleys. And that's what his life looks like. It's just a roller coaster of up and down. And it's out of control. And it's to the point where he's cutting himself with stones. What is that? I mean, we understand some people do that for the self of, or sake of self-affliction or self-punishment or, or even for some some. Feeling that they get out of it but in satan's mind. It's just doing slowly what he would do instantly if he could It's just killing someone a little at a time instead of all at once and that's the condition that this man is in He's being killed a little at a time and he is in a dark And hopeless position, but notice in verse 6 one of the greatest words in the bible but There's there's always another option if Jesus is alive it says but when he saw Jesus afar off he ran and worshipped him now worshipped probably not the best translated word the Greek word literally is that he fell prostrate before him that he fell down on the ground in the presence of Jesus and it says that he cried with a loud voice and he said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Now, we know right now that this ain't the man talking. It's the spirit that's inside of him that's taking control of his life. He says, I adjure thee by God that you torment me not. For he said unto him that as Jesus spoke to this man, and he said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he asked him, what is your name? And he answered this demon-possessed man, He said, saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. So this man's not possessed by just one unclean spirit, but this man is possessed by many demons. And so the demon continues speaking to Jesus in verse 10. And he said that he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of pigs feeding. And all the demons besought him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave and the unclean spirits went out of the man and entered into the swine and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea and they were about 2,000, now, 2,000 pigs. We don't know how many demons there were, probably at least that many. And it says that they were then choked in the scene. What an amazing encounter this is between Jesus and this demon-possessed man. Jesus calls him to attention as he's lying there at his feet, and he gives a command, and he follows it with a question. The command, first and foremost, before inquiring at all, has come out of the man. I'm so glad that the the command is first. Because it doesn't matter how many demons there are, or how dark the influence is, or how powerful the stronghold in this man's life is, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter to Jesus how many there are. He says, come out, before he even asks how many there are. Because with Jesus, it's easy. You know, one of the things that blows my mind when I read the book of Revelation and I, and I, I see Jesus returning, and, and all of, the, all of the, the, the citizens of the earth and all of the kings and governments are gathered together against Jesus. And Jesus just comes, and the battle's over in less than a verse. It just says that he consumed him with the sword that came out of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. And then it just goes on. And you're like, no, 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 wait a minute. Where's the blood? When does he duck? Where's like the guy that, it's just, that's it. There's no match. It, it's not like there's even a contest. It's just like his mouth opens and the battle's over. Everyone's just gone. And here we see this man who has no power over the influence in his life, but when it's in the presence of Jesus, Jesus speaks the word. He says, come out of the man and it's done. He follows it with a question, and he says, what's your name? And the demon speaks, and he says, Legion, because we are many. And then the demons that are in him beg him, and I don't understand this, and I don't think anybody else does either. (laughs) They beg him not to cast them out of the country, but rather to let them possess this herd of pigs that's nearby grazing, who he then gives leave, and they are wildly riled up, And they violently run down into the sea, and they're choked by the water. Now I know that there's some people that are offended by what Jesus does here because he just wasted and slaughtered two thousand pigs, and so Peta is not happy with this passage. Okay, people that love animals are not happy with this passage because of what Jesus. But here's what I want to say in Jesus' defense: is that Jesus did not kill these pigs. Scientific fact, pigs can swim, okay? Pigs can swim. So it isn't the pigs and it isn't Jesus, it's the devil. It says that the devil drove them in and they were choked by the water and they were then immediately slaughtered. Satan killed the innocent pigs, okay? So don't blame Jesus, blame the person who actually Did it it's the devil now you say why does this happen? Why is it even there? Why is it even worthy because I believe what jesus wants us to see Is that what satan was able to do to these pigs in an instant Is what he's seeking to do in the life of humanity as quickly as he can That when satan has place in someone's life He begins the process of bringing them to a point of death notice that this man had his dwelling already among the tombs Notice that he was already in the process of mutilating himself into a place of an early grave And what satan wants to do in every life if he has access to it is that he wants to bring it To a place of death, but we see jesus setting this man free now watch what happens as a result It says in verse 14. It says that they that fed the swine Fled and told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that was done. And so these pig shepherds run into the village. They noise abroad quickly what's going on out by the seacoast. And the whole village comes to see what Jesus did. And it says that they came to Jesus. And here was the outcome concerning the man who had been demon-possessed. And it says that they saw him that was possessed by the devil and that had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind now i love that description the secondary description of this man who had been so satanized before because we're told in the other gospels that mark doesn't tell us is that he had been naked that his clothes had already been torn from him that he was running up and down we see in the accounts up and down in the mountains and we see that he was out of his mind completely reckless and untamable But we see that in just one encounter with Jesus, this man who had before had no peace whatsoever, probably hadn't sit down in God only knows how long. We see him now sitting. There's a state of peace. There's a tranquility that's come over his life. We see secondarily that he's no longer naked, which in the Bible, nakedness speaks of the exposing of shame that's internal. But we see that he is now clothed, which symbolizes to us that jesus has not only covered the immodesty of his appearance but jesus has done something on the inside that has addressed the shame issue that was reflected by his appearance being naked the bible says in proverbs i think it's 16 verse 6 somewhere around there if not you can read the whole book of proverbs and find it but it's a it's a famous verse and it says this it says it says can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned And that's an interesting sequence if you look at the words. It says the fire is in the bosom. The bosom is the heart. It's the secret place. It's underneath all the layers where no one else can see. And and by context, the fire is something evil. It's something that destroys. And and it says that the fire, if it's taken into the bosom, it's only a matter of time before the clothing is burned. The shame that's under the surface is going to slowly work its way towards the surface and eventually it's going to get there. And so the same thing, that's what's happened to this man. The shame of his sin, the shame of Satan's influence in his life, at one point it started small like it does with all. But it had come to the point where the shame was fully known by all. But after encountering Jesus, Jesus addresses the issue on the inside and then he clothes the man on the outside and he restores the wholeness and the integrity of this man that had been so demonized and destroyed by Satan he's clothed and then third it says that he's in his right mind now that's amazing because only god can do that only god can get in and rework the wirings of a mind not one of us has the ability to do that in and of ourselves we are completely powerless to do it we cannot be fixed in our mind it's what god does uh, in in the way that he works in our lives now before i move on i want to say this there are three reasons three reasons why people are bound and they could be christians or they could be non-christians bound with chains bound with fetters bound with issues the first one is that they've never had an encounter with jesus Because you have no power in your life to do anything for yourself if you haven't had an encounter with Jesus. And so that one, we're just going to pass right over it because it goes without saying. If you don't know Jesus, you can be chained. You probably are. The second reason people are bound is that they can be saved. They can know him. Their names could be written in heaven. They're being sent to heaven, you know, their futures in heaven. But they've allowed Satan to influence their life and thus they're bound. They've believed his suggestions. They've been influenced by his temptations. And thus they're saved, but yet they're still in chains. Now, how does he do that? Again, he whispers to us things like, you can't be free. Or the sin that you're enjoying is not really harming you. It's forgiven. It's, you're no longer under the law. So it, it's not a chain. That's just something that you do. It's part of who you are. And he lies to us in that way, and thus we're chained. He lies to us, and he tells us that Jesus can't satisfy us that if that if we allow him to free us that he's not able to fill the vacuum that's created when we let go of the thing that we've been holding on to or the thing that we've been chained by and he makes us believe that it's impossible for us to be free Uh, another reason why you can be saved and yet chained is because you have become convinced that god isn't big enough to set you free he's not willing enough to set you free or he's not gracious enough to really set you free. Somewhere inside, we still hear the voice of our parents saying, oh, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you're going to do. I'm not setting you free. You want that sin? You can have that sin. And we believe that, and thus we don't believe in the grace of God. Another reason why Christians can be bound even though they're saved is because we believe the satanic suggestion that somehow our freedom is up to us, that it's our responsibility, that we have to make ourselves free in some way. Do you know what I found? I have found that human beings are like iPhones. They're amazing creations, but you can't get too deep into the settings. Has that ever frustrated you? You know, they give you like one or two things that you can control, and after that, It is what it is. And that's kind of what happens. That's what we believe about ourselves. We have some issues, some addictions, some tendencies, some thought patterns, some faith struggles. We have some obsessions. We have some things that we can't let go of. We have some things. We have some things. I don't know if anybody here has things. I know I have some things. And I can't reach those things. That's the problem. That no matter how hard I try, no matter how much positive thinking I try to apply to it, no matter what books I read, sermons I listen to, disciplines I create in my life, there are things inside of me that I can't define, I can't even see what they are. And if it's up to me to try to change something about me, then I'm never going to change And if Satan can get me to believe that it's my responsibility, then I can be saved, but I can still be in chains. And so in my life, this is how it works, and it took me way too long to learn this, is that when there's an issue that comes to my attention that I can't fix, something that's obsessive in my mind and in my thinking that just goes over and over and over and over again something that's annoying me and someone else that I can't change, and it's going over and over, something that I'm struggling with. Do you know what I've finally learned to do? i finally learned to get alone with Jesus and to say, Lord, you said that you're the God that fills all in all. You said that you're the God over all flesh and that nothing is too hard for you. You said that your thoughts towards me are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. And God, I'm dealing with something that's way too deep inside of me for me to do anything about it but you said that you would, and so I'm asking you to come into my life and make the adjustments where they need to be made because I can't change myself. And what I have found is that that's the very thing that he's waiting for to be invited in and to do for us something that we could never do on our own because man was never intended to live independently of God. And if Satan can get me to believe that it's up to me, then I remain bound even though I'm saved. A third reason why people are bound, not just because they've never encountered Jesus, not just because they believe the lie of Satan, but the third reason people remain bound and unchanged is because they want to be bound and unchanged. I want you to notice what happens in the closing of the passage. Notice at the end of verse 15, when the people from the village come and they see this man whom they all knew clothed and in his right mind. Notice what it says. It says that they were afraid. Do you see that? They see a man, was demon-possessed and maniacal, now sitting and clothed and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus, and that makes them afraid. Now, does that puzzle anybody else in the room, or is it just me? Because if I'm thinking like a logical human being, I'm thinking, wouldn't you be more afraid of this man when there's nothing you can do to break the chain, to, to chain him up and tame him? Wouldn't you be more afraid that who knows if this guy's going to come into our village at night and overpower us and kill all of our kids? Wouldn't that make you afraid? That doesn't seem to bother them. That would make me afraid. They're not afraid of that. Uh, another thing that maybe they should be afraid of is what these people are becoming. Did you catch it in the text? They've become pig shepherds. That's not normal. You're not supposed to be a pig shepherd. Those two words don't belong in in the same. They're herding pigs. You know that picture you see of the, the, the peaceful shepherd and he's got the lamb over his neck and the legs coming down the side and he's there in that tranquil garden and the sheep are surrounding him? You ever seen a picture of a man with a pig? He's got the pig and he's like, oh yeah, this is a good one. You know, this whole thing. Listen, listen, people are not supposed to be pig shepherds especially in israel it was contraband it was illegal it was a pot farm that's what was going on they weren't supposed to be eating pigs why were they raising pigs it wasn't because they were making footballs they had a shady economy and little by little these people were being affected By their disobedience to God, and they should have been afraid of what they were becoming, but that didn't bother them. What did bother them was a man who had been completely out of his mind, who's no longer out of his mind. He's sitting in his right mind, clothed in the presence of Jesus. That bothered them. They were afraid of that. You say, why in the world would they be afraid of that? And here's what I submit to you. I submit to you that they were afraid of him, number one, because they liked having that man there in the tombs in the condition that he was in, because him there like that made them feel better about themselves where they were. As long as that guy is there, I'm okay. As long as I have that guy to compare myself to, I'm doing pretty good. And there was a comfort in that. And when they saw him fixed and in his right mind, there was something triggering in their mind going, wait a minute, if Jesus comes into our village and he starts doing this for everyone in our village and putting him in their right mind, it's not going to be very long before I'm the guy that looks the worst amongst all the people that are there. And that made them uncomfortable. They liked having that guy there in the tombs the way that he was. It made them afraid when they saw it there was another reason why they were afraid they were afraid of this and i believe this is valid this is real this is legit a legit fear that they had and that was this is that if there is a man that has power on a level high enough to affect change at this level in the deepest part then what does that mean if I let Jesus into my village, or if I let Jesus into my life, what is he going to do? And is he enough to fill the void that's created? If I let Jesus into my life, is he going to supply my money? What if my money is coming from something that's shady and he changes that? What am I going to do for fun? I do a lot of things right now that I think Jesus is not going to allow and like in my life. What does it mean for me, very simply, just to not be in control of my life, for me to yield control of my life to someone else. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. And what I'm doing to cope might not be working, but at least I understand it. That's a valid fear. I'm unsure. I'm unaware of God's goodness. I'm unsure of his power. I'm unsure of his ability. I don't know his nature. Is he trustworthy if I let him into my life That what he's going to do there is actually going to be good for me. And someone who doesn't know the nature and the power of God is naturally going to be reluctant to give him control and lordship over their life. That's a legitimate fear. I think we've all experienced that to some degree, and God understands it. Now, this is the place where the grace and the patience of Jesus shines in the passage. Notice what happens after they're afraid. It says in verse 16, It says and they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed of the devil and also concerning the swine And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts They they see it. They're shocked. They're afraid. They're shaken They're not ready to let jesus into their village And so they say would you please kindly get back in your boat and go back to the other side? Now, here's the amazing thing, is that Jesus is going to oblige them, and he's going to get back in the boat, and he's going to leave this area. Now, I have heard this passage taught, and I have taught this passage this way, and I'm sorry, I see the error of my ways now, is that when they asked Jesus to leave, Jesus was saying, you can ask me to leave? All right, you want me to leave? I'll leave. And you know what? I ain't never coming back. And he never did go back. And I've heard it taught that Jesus said, you don't want me? Fine, then you won't have me. But you know, that's not the spirit of the passage at all. Do you know that by leaving, Jesus is actually showing more grace to them than if he had gone into the village? Why? Notice what happens next. It says in verse 18 that when he was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. In other words, this healed man, recently delivered, says, Jesus, can I follow with you? Can I get into the boat and can I come too? Those people in the village, they don't like me. It ain't going to go good for me if I go back into that village. And notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, go home to your friends and tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and has had compassion on you. Do you know what Jesus does? He says, okay, I'm going to go, but here's my card. I am going to leave with you a living example of what I do in every life that is submitted to my Lordship. And every single day, you will have the opportunity to see and listen to an example of what I do in a life that lets me inside. This is supreme grace on the part of Jesus. Because what he's saying to them essentially is that I understand that this is big, and that right now you're short circuited in your mind when you see the change that's taking place in this man's life, and when you think about what that might mean for you. And so, what I'm going to let you do is I'm going to let you process by observation what happens when I come into the life, and I'm going to let you choose as you come to faith in and of yourself. He gives them this example. By the way, you know what's amazing about this man Is that he wouldn't have to say a word He wouldn't have to say Do you know the four spiritual laws? Have you heard the big question? Do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? Have you ever considered your eternity? He doesn't do any of that He just gets up in the morning He puts on his clothes He goes out to work He walks down the street He says, hey, how you doing? And every person in that village Knows what he was And what he is And here's what I submit to you on that is that the more Jesus is real in your life and that you've allowed him to affect change in your life, the less you even have to say in terms of being a witness for him because who he is and what he does in a life is evident in your life. Jesus gives him this privilege and this call and this maniac becomes a missionary as Jesus sends him into a life. An amazing thing. Now watch this as the passage closes. Jesus says no Notice how the guy responds in verse 20. It says that he departed and he began to publish in Decapolis the great things that Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Now, what if, and just think hypothetically with me for just a minute, what if this man said, no, no, I I." I asked if I could be with you. I asked if I could be in the boat. There's obviously room. I want to be one of the 12. I want to be called. I want to, I want to be with you, Lord. I want to be face to face with what I want, Lord. I need you. And Jesus, you said, no. You said, if I ask anything according to your will, that I have the things that I ask for. You said, you have not because you ask not. You said that you give me the desires of my heart, and now I've asked you for something, and you said, No. Jesus said no, but he also said to the man, go. He said, no, you can't do this because that's not my plan for you and where you're going to be the most effective. But I'm putting you someplace where you will be the most effective and I'm giving you something to do. And it tells us that he didn't become discouraged or dis- disillusioned by the fact that Jesus said no to one thing. He took what was given to him and it says that he published all throughout the Decapolis. And here's what blows my mind about that. Do you know what Decapolis is? Decapolis means 10 cities. And it was a small group of 10 cities that all existed in in an area all, all around each other. And this man went into these cities and he won those cities over for Jesus. Jesus gave him those cities. And here's why that blows my mind. Because in the passage that we read last week, Jesus spoke about how he gives his servants things to do. And that when one day we stand before him and we give an account, that there are going to be some that the Lord is going to say to you, he's going to say, I gave you 10 talents. What did you do with the 10? And it says that they will say to him, Lord, I have taken the 10 talents that you've given to me. I traded with them and I made 10 more. And Jesus is going to reply to them. And he's going to say, you have been faithful with a little. Have rule, listen, over what? 10 cities. Have a Decapolis. See, listen, this man couldn't have what he wanted, but he took what he was given and did the most with it. And he was given a full reward. Sometimes we don't change because we feel like what Jesus has given to us isn't exactly what we wanted or what we asked for. But if you take what you've been given and you do with it what you can, you're going to be rewarded fully. Would you stand with me as we close? I sense tonight that there's probably some of us that are here. Maybe we're saved, but in all honesty, maybe we feel bound. There's some things in our life that are still holding us, some shackles, some caves that we've been in. We're living, but we feel like we're dwelling among the tombs. Here's what I want to tell you tonight. I want to tell you that you serve a God that is infinitely greater than anything that you could ask or think in the depths of your most imaginative moment. That the most you could ever think that you could know about him is infinitely greater. You could be here tonight in a place where you have believed the suggestion of the enemy that you have of him all that there is to have, I want to tell you that's wrong. That's a lie. That it doesn't matter where you are that Jesus wants to take you from this place that you're at right now and he wants to bring you further and bring you onward and bring you up. My question to you is are you willing to go? Are you willing to say, Jesus, I want you in my life for all that you are. I trust in your power. In your compassion, in your word, in your promise, in your ability. Father, I pray in Jesus' name over your congregation. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would show yourself to be the I Am. That even as you continually got bigger in the minds of your disciples, that you would get bigger in the hearts and minds of us that are gathered here. That, Lord, you would shake us out of our complacency, shake us out of our compromise, shake us out of the chains that have enclosed around us. And Lord, we ask that you would do what no man can. We believe you, we trust you, we put our faith in you. We believe, Lord, that when you died and rose again, that you raised us to life with you in Christ. And so we're asking you tonight, Lord Jesus, that the resurrected King, that the resurrected King would resurrect us. Would you fill us with your power and with your spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.